Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to Mark chapter 3. We're continuing our journey through the story of Jesus and his life with an up-close and personal look at the ministry of the life of Jesus so that we can really answer the question that Jesus asked in Mark chapter 8, the most resonating question that you will ever have to answer in your life. And you may choose to ignore it, you may choose to answer it contrary to what the Bible says, but ultimately I'm going to teach you through this journey. Our elders and myself are going to teach you through this journey what the Bible says the answer to the question is so you can make a decision how you're going to respond. And the question that Jesus asked, Mark chapter 8, when he looked over his shoulder at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? He asked the same question to us today, Grace Bible. Who, who is it that you say that this Jesus is? Now, my goal and my prayer through this is that we begin to be able to answer a question directly from the Word of God in a way that Jesus himself introduced himself to us so that we can know truly who he is. Not, not this illusioned version of Jesus that we have kind of pieced together through cultural Christianity and what our grandma said about him and what our Sunday school teacher said about him and a couple Bible verses we learned when we were kids said about him, but like the entirety of who Jesus is so that we can truly with conviction know and answer the question who this Jesus is. Because I'm telling you, like, the fake Jesus that we create in our minds that's basically the sum total of who we would want him to be and how we think he should be, that Jesus can't save us from our sins. That Jesus never died on the cross for your sins. That Jesus was never resurrected from the grave. That Jesus doesn't exist. That's just some cultural version of who we've dreamed him up to be. The real Jesus is displayed throughout the scriptures over and over again. The whole Old Testament points to him and described what he would be like. The whole New Testament reveals him and describes exactly what he was like. And we get further later in the New Testament and we understand what his life means for us right here and right now in the everyday ordinary stuff of life and for eternity to come. So yes, I'm telling you, the answer to the question of who you say Jesus is means everything for everything, and I don't want you to get it wrong. It's the most important question you could ever grapple with in your life. And so we journey together through the book of Mark, just one of the gospels that describes the life and ministry of Jesus. We chose Mark because it's kind of an up-close look at the action-packed journey of Jesus' ministry. It jumps right into day one of him doing ministry on earth, kind of zooms in on his life as an adult, and we get deceived. The book of Mark basically spans over about three years of life and ministry, and we're taking an up-close look, and we're going to get versions of Jesus that we love hearing about because it's the version that we've always had in our hearts, and then there's going to be times you're going to get versions of Jesus that we probably didn't realize existed, but I want you to know him in the real one the real one. And by the way, that's why I encourage you, bring your Bibles to church. Novel concept, right? If you don't own a Bible, we'll give you one. I just want you to have a real copy of God's Word in front of you. My personal preference is actual paper. Uh, I know some of y'all do your little digital thing, but you can't take good notes in your digital thing. You know what I'm saying? Not like you can here to be able to go back to years later. And the main reason why I want you to have the Word of God in front of you while we're teaching the Word of God is so you can make sure I'm not lying to you. Because I want your faith to be your faith. 
I want your trust in God to be your trust in God. I want the revelation that God speaks to you through his word to be what he's speaking to you. I, I don't want anybody to put their faith in man around here. I don't want your trust to ever be in me or in the pastors or elders of Grace Bible or what we've said or what we've taught. I want your trust to be in the one true king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ himself. And I want you to immerse yourself and your life into his word and just enjoy just the richness of the love story of God that's been given to you as a gift. And so that's why we're studying through it together, kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this whole journey. We're going to get a look at Jesus's life today that many of us probably had taken for granted because oftentimes when we approach the word of God, we put our Sunday school glasses on. Take your Sunday school glasses off. They ain't going to help you ever. Remember this Jesus, he was a hundred percent God, a hundred percent man, and he was living in a hundred percent mess of a world that you live in too. All the struggles and challenges and difficult dynamics that we have in our lives, he navigated through his life too, walking on the face of the earth. He felt the sting of betrayal. He felt the pain of loss and grief. He felt the struggle of walking through this journey and the temptation of the enemy always trying to derail his life. He felt what it was like to have just messy relational dynamics all around him all the time, not only in his friend group, but in his family members as well. Like, Can anybody identify with that? The people in your life crazy? Hmm? You might be the crazy one. You might be the common denominator. And Jesus knows it well. It's not unlike God. I don't know if anybody's told you this before. It's not unlike God to allow the circumstances of our, right, uh, of our life to continue to grow more and more unstable so that we are drawn to the one thing that is. Let me frame it up another way. It's not unlike God to allow darkness to continue to slip into deeper darkness so that the light becomes all the more brighter. You hearing what I'm saying? I don't know where you're at in your journey of your life story or whatever, how like messy or messed up your situations may be right now, but I, but I want you to know that like, it's the love of God to draw us to him through the chaos. We've been asking him to take the chaos away. It just might be the chaos that God is using as the road to get you to him. You hear what I'm saying? It might be his love that paved that road of trouble and pain and struggle in your life, a road that he himself is not all too unfamiliar with. We see it in our own personal lives. We see it around the world right now. Keep praying for the people of Ukraine. Hey, pray for the body of Christ in Russia. Pray for the body of Christ in Belarus. Pray for the body of Christ in Poland. Continue to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, trusting that God's going to use the chaos to create something extraordinary for his glory. I bet he is. I bet he already is. He's way ahead of us on that because nothing's new. Like all this mess that we're seeing around the world right now, this isn't new news. I know we sit on the edge of our seat thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Like, believe it. Man, I read the end of the book, and it gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. But the good news is for those who are in Christ Jesus, like we're just sojourners passing through. The best is still yet to come. The chaos of this world was meant to draw our hearts and our eyes to the one thing that is right and true and good and stable, and that's Jesus. God is using the chaos for his glory. He always does, and he always will. Keep praying towards that end. 
As we look at Jesus' life, I'm really going to point out specifically some just the odd relational dynamics of his life and how that is a pointer to us to see the one true and right stable relationship that we need to sure up in our lives as well. And so have a close look. Here it is. Real life right here. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Like his celebrity status had been going off the charts as we've studied over these last couple of weeks, but it's it is so big right now, people wanting to be around Jesus, that they're not just gathering with him when he stops traveling. Now the crowd of people are just following him from town to town, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger. They're coming from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. I mean, people are traveling just to be in this pack of people that are following Jesus so much so, he tells his disciples, verse 9, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. He's going to need an escape boat. You want to talk about celeb status. He needs an escape boat lest they crush against him because he had healed so many people so that all who had diseases were now pressing in around him just hoping for the opportunity to touch him. This is the kind of Jesus we get excited about, the one who's doing all these miracle healings and all that stuff. We're hoping to be in the crowd that get to touch Jesus because we want miracles to happen in our life too. But let me remind you, like Jesus is still in the miracle working business. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Still in the miracle working business. But let me hit you with this real truth, and this is why Jesus had an escape boat. He wasn't planning on hanging around and healing everybody that showed up. Because every miracle ever that Jesus has ever performed ever was never about the miracle itself. It was always about the miracle maker himself. And when the miracles themselves became a distraction from the miracle maker, it was time to hop in a skateboard and move on. I know we don't want to hear that because we think that it's Jesus' job to make us as comfortable as possible when comfort is really the God that we worship. And we've just hung Jesus' name on it, thinking it's his responsibility. Let me just point you to the Jesus that had an escape boat. Because there was just too many people. Because these people weren't showing up because they were worshipers and followers of Jesus, the Lord, of King, the Lord and King of heaven and earth. They were showing up for the sideshow. They had heard that he had healed other people, so they showed up hoping that he might do the same for them. And even if they didn't need a healing, they showed up because they at least wanted to see the action. This was front page news. This was all over their social media accounts back in those days. They're like, man, we, I got to see this for myself. This is crazy. Like These weren't submitted worshipers and followers of Christ Jesus. This was a, a, an entourage, a massive crowd of people that wanted something from him, as you might imagine. So celebrity status was inevitable in the life of Jesus, but it was uninvited. This isn't why he had come. Every miracle ever was meant to point to the fact that he was the king of heaven and earth, and he was God who had come to rescue them from their sin and set them free. And every miracle now serves the same purpose. He has a perfect plan in all of that. If that wasn't tricky enough in his life, verse 11 says, whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they would cry out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What's up with that? You would think like that would be pretty cool. Anybody possessed with an unclean spirit, a, a demon would fall on their face before Jesus in a crowd of people and shout out loud, you are the son of God. Like, wouldn't he have wanted that, right? I had to go consult the uh, the uh, 
smart people on this one. I've got a whole bunch of books on my desk that Cameron sets on my desk to make sure I read them when I'm studying this stuff. And I, I went to the scholars on this, like, what, like, what's up with that? Why would Jesus shut him up? Wasn't that whole point to prove to the world that he was the Son of God? That was the whole point of the book of Mark. Mark was trying to prove to us that he was, in fact, God here on earth as Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing glory to God the Father and rescuing us from our sin. And like what the scholars said, I thought it was pretty interesting, why Jesus kept shutting up the people that were demon-possessed that were shouting out he was the Son of God is because these demons weren't worshiping Jesus. You almost get the Sunday school version, all right? They've fallen down. They're shouting out he's Son of God. You think, oh, well, that's cool. Now they're worshiping him. Demons don't ever worship Jesus. They know who he is, and they're declaring who he is, but it's not from a posture of worship. They're trying to trip him up because this is what the scholars said. They said, wrong voices, wrong time. That's why Jesus kept shutting them up. He didn't want the demons to be the ones, even though they weren't the first one. Mark's already declared it. God himself showed up at Jesus' baptism to service. God the Father showed up to the baptism service and declared it. Now the demons are declaring. He's kind of got the whole bookend thing happening, but he shuts the demons up. Wrong voices, wrong time. It'll just confuse the people. And he wasn't ready for that. His life and his ministry and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave was going to prove and show that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. So he silences the demons. He's got a mad mosh of people following from town to town. He's got demons and evil spirits trying to trip him up. On top of that, he goes to pick his team. And he went up on the mountain, verse 13, and called to him those who he desired. These were guys that he hand-selected and chose specifically to be his closest followers and friends. And he was going to have them so that they might be with him, so he might send them out to preach, tell the good news, and also that, so they would have authority to cast out demons. And so he appointed for himself 12. We know them as the 12 apostles. Simon, who became later known as Peter, James, son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. We had Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, say the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who you may have heard about before because he was the one that betrayed Jesus. Like, these are the 12 guys Jesus picked. Let me, let me help you understand. We would not have picked e any one of these 12 for Jesus. The common denominators with these guys were they weren't educated, they weren't popular, they weren't good speakers, they weren't anything of what we thought Jesus would need to bank his ministry on. As a matter of fact, not all of these guys were known or even liked. You got seven fishermen, just average blue-collar workers that would have been competitors in the world of business. And then he names off a guy named Matthew, or your Bible may call him Levi. Matthew bought a tax franchise from the Roman Empire so that he could make a fortune while helping Rome oppress the people, the same people that were also going to be disciples with him. Every one of these original 12 would have hated Matthew. Interesting enough, I think Cameron talked about it a couple of weeks ago when he selected Matthew, like plucked him right out of the tax collecting booth. They went over to Matthew's house and had dinner that night. How would you like to have been picked before Matthew? Been with Jesus and see him pick Matthew who you hate, and now you got to have dinner at Matthew's house to be with Jesus. Truly, Jesus washes the, defeat, washes the feet of guys like Judas first. Not only Matthew, who would have been hated in the bunch, but there was a guy named Simon the Zealot. You know, Zealot is a, is a title that guys get that were political radicals of the time. 
uh, zealots were known for doing like really shady things politically. Like they would like hide daggers in their jacket pockets just in case they could catch a Roman guard on some empty alley somewhere to kill him. Simon the Zealot. And then he picks Judas. Well, you may know a little bit about Judas. He was the one who ends up betraying Jesus in the end. Um, Jesus' hand-selected apostles and friends. I've heard them referred to as 12 ordinary men. I don't even think they meet that criteria. Commercial break. This is why we believe so deeply in a phrase that you hear us refer to sometimes called decentralized discipleship. It's really messy. It's really risky. It's dangerous. There's a lot of problems that come with it. This is why most modern churches ascribe to a ministry philosophy of centralized discipleship. One that really, if you've been a part of church, probably every church you've been to, for the most part, ascribes a centralized discipleship. In other words, we make disciples when you come and see. As long as you come to church, as long as you show up to Sunday school, as long as you come to our Bible studies, we'll make a disciple of Jesus out of you. But we never, in centralized discipleship models, you never really train and equip people and send them out into the world so that they can go and make disciples. That's why we know it's not God's design. Now, it's good to leverage the institution of the church to have some classes and some trainings and some worship services where we worship God together and we open up the Word of God together. That's all right and good and biblical, but it was never meant to stop there. Jesus shows us, actually, otherwise, that he was going to bank the future of the church of Jesus Christ on them 12 knuckleheads. He was going to equip them. He was going to live life with them. And it was going to be messy, and it was going to be painful, and it was going to be risky. But it was through those 12 less than ordinary men that the Spirit of God was going to change the world. That's why we believe so deeply in decentralized discipleship, where we decentralize it. We take it out of the building. Ladies and gentlemen, the church has left the building. It's messy. It's difficult. But we hear the calling of God that Ephesians 4 has placed on us as pastors and prophets and priests and elders that our job, our one job, is not to meet all the cultural demands that church folk place on our lives. It's to do one specific thing, equip the saints for the work of ministry, decentralized discipleship. Who's the saints? Y'all. Y'all hearing me? It's messy. Because your lives are messy like ours are. And just like these disciples, you probably don't have all the answers yet. And you may be kind of new to this thing. And I mean, heck, you've never even led Sunday school class. You've just been a fisherman your whole life. Like, you, you really don't know all this stuff yet. Decentralized discipleship that God would use whosoever would. Trust in him as Lord and King and make disciples who make disciples through their lives. Everywhere you live, work, and play. You don't got to teach a class here. God's already stuck you in a group of coworkers. You don't got to leave Bible study here. God's already given you neighbors that love to come cook out at your house. That's the classroom. That's the environment. That's where real discipleship happens, decentralized. But you better believe it was going to be messy for Jesus because he was surrounded by 12 knuckleheads. And you better believe it's messy for us because, well, just look at y'all. You know what I'm saying? Like, it gets crazy. It gets crazy fast, but we believe in it deeply, and we're committed to that. This isn't some new gimmick. This is a Jesus-ordained, God-commissioned purpose of his church 
to go and make disciples of all nations. And the only way to go is I can't keep saying, well, come and see. I have to keep equipping you to go and tell. It has to happen outside of here. Not everybody's going to show up in these four walls. There's going to be over 1,000 people that are going to show up to this building this weekend. But there's over 100,000 people in Highlands County. We ain't even close. And this building's never going to be able to make disciples of all nations in the heartland. Only you can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Decentralized discipleship everywhere you live, work, and play. This is why all of our programs and classes point to that end. We want to equip you to gather together in communities of believers that are also a part of your same general network of life, same general neighborhood, same general workplace, and equip you for the work of ministry so that you guys together, like the disciples did, are now going to make disciples in your regular, ordinary rhythms of life at the t-ball field, at the cookout, during your Super Bowl party. This is Jesus' design for ministry, and we see it right here as ugly as it was. But hey, here's a front row seat to Jesus' life. Mobs of followers following, just wanting something from him. Demons trying to trip him up. And his closest friends are, well, he's just hoping to make it through the day without somebody stabbing somebody. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes home. And the crowd gathered again, verse 20, so that they could not even eat. And when his family, say his family, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Say seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Let, let, me, let me read that last sentence for you again. His family went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Who was saying Jesus is out of his mind? His, who went out to try to seize him, literally in the Greek, restrain him, like arrest him, like tackle him if they have to? Who was it that went out to do that? You think your family's messed up. This is the sweet little Mother Mary and his half-brothers and half-sisters that have concluded for themselves Jesus is outside of his mind for a variety of reasons that were semi-justifiable other than they must have forgotten what the voice of the angel said, that this was God coming to earth. But I mean, who needs an escape boat? You know what I'm saying? In a world where groceries are scarce and meals were more like rituals, like nobody in their right mind ignores a meal in order to serve and minister to people. In fact, when enough, they had heard the stories about how Jesus sometimes would stay up all night just praying under the stars. On top of that, you read John chapter 7, verse 5. It says his own brothers did not believe in him. That's just Jesus. That's not the Son of God. You want to talk about messy family dynamics. Jesus' own family now thinks he's crazy. You know, in a world where, in their culture, where family, honor, and shame, if that makes any sense, uh, family honor and family shame, like where you fell on that scale was so critically important to your identity. Just so you know, this isn't the family saying of Jesus, like, oh, that Jesus, he's so crazy. Y'all go ahead on and get him. The biscuits are burning. No. Nah. This is Jesus' family finally 
coming to the conclusion and their perspective of Jesus is that his religious fanaticism is now bringing shame to their family name. And so they have decided that it's time to go and restrain him and bring him home because he's lost his mind. Never thought about Jesus' family seeing Jesus like that, did you? Read it for yourself. So not only were the mobs following him from city to city, wanting something from him, not only were the demons trying to trip him up, not only were the 12 men that were his closest friends and now apostles just a flight risk every day, but now his own family thinks he's crazy. And we already know the religious people hate him. You ever felt that isolated? Like, man, every relational dynamic you have is just messed up. This is where Jesus is right here at chapter 3. All around him, all this instability and all of the relationships in every corner of his life are fragile at best. But remember what I said at the beginning? It is not unlike God to allow things in our life to continue to slip into instability so that we are drawn and begin to see the one thing that is stable. Well, Jesus begins to draw our attention somewhere else, off of the relational mess of his life onto something that matters most. And it happens in a debate with the religious who hated him as well. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called to them, called them to him, and he said to them in parables, hey, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, then that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, then he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. No one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, this whole little section is looking at the religious elite who are now calling Jesus Satan, saying he's demon-possessed. This is Jesus looking at them and saying, that doesn't even make sense. Satan don't cast out Satan, dummy. Of course, he didn't say dummy. That was my, I put that in. It's not in my Bible, probably not in yours. That doesn't even make sense, logically. Like, how does Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself can't stand. Doesn't even make any sense. And then he goes on to say, like, these very poignant words that have rattled the cage of Christians for generations. When he says these words, Truly I say to you that all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But, that's a big but, and I cannot lie right there. I tell that joke all the time and y'all still laugh. I love it. Like, (laughs) but all the sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, including blasphemies against Jesus, by the way, like Peter who denied Jesus three times. Luke 12 tells even that would be forgiven. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying of Jesus that he has an unclean spirit. 
we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, like this is one of the phrases in Christendom that have rattled our cages for centuries. This is like when we start dropping names like Antichrist, like we feel something when we say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We've given it different names in our culture and in our time. Um, We've referred to it as the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And which leaves the question that many of us are probably asking is like, well, what exactly does that mean? And have I done that? Because I sure would like to know. Let's answer that today, shall we? Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what it ain't. Oftentimes people ask me the question when they're wondering, they say, well, isn't committing suicide the unforgivable sin? And the answer to that is no. Now, you may choose to believe that or whatever, but you just won't find it in here. Now, with that said, let me take a little commercial break because I can't just leave that one hanging out there. I recognize over throughout this weekend, well over a thousand folks will be in this room. There'll be several hundred more watching online that just heard me make that statement. And I want you to know that I recognize in numbers that vast, there is at least one, if not multiple people that are considering suicide this morning. So let me just leave you with two things related to that before we jump back into the sermon. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. That's, that's, that's not number one. Uh, some, some of you have been concerned that you're loved. When I know many of us have been impacted by it from different angles in our lives, and even some personally have struggled with thoughts of suicide. Um, I, I, some of you that have lost a loved one to suicide have wondered, well, they believe in Jesus as Lord, but they took their own life, so does that mean that they didn't get to go to heaven? The answer is no. It's not the unforgivable sin. But there's two things I want to leave you with related to that. Um, thing number one, just, just raw and practical stuff right here. Raw and practical thing number one is, um, while I recognize that depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and just the struggle of life is so real, I don't ever want you to think for a second that I discount the very real feeling that you're feeling inside of hopelessness and weariness. But I do want to say to you that choosing to take your own life is not eliminating your problems. It's just putting your problems on the people that you love the most. It's not a real solution. It may feel like it, but that's a lie from the enemy. Just trying to convince you that you are not worthy, you are not worth it, this can't be fixed. It's beyond help, you're beyond hope. Those are all lies from the enemy. Those aren't coming from the mouth of God. So that was number one, like, you're not eliminating your problems, you're dumping it on the people that you love the most. And thing number two is, with the very reality that I know that some of you are experiencing those struggles, Like if you are in that dark place and you are trying to decide whether or not that's the best decision for you, we don't want you to suffer alone. Let's work together to get you the help that you deserve and that you need and that your family deserves. 
Because I want you to know and believe, if you don't hear anything, you, I want you to know and believe you can be set free. You can find hope and help in life again. You hearing what I'm saying? You are not alone. You may choose to suffer in silence, but like, we're not, we, we're not miracle workers when it comes to that. We partner with people that are much more skilled in that area than we are, but like, if you've never felt safe to tell somebody that struggle, let's talk about it so that we can get you connected with people that can really help and get you out of that hole. And let's trust the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to revitalize and refresh your life in a way you never thought possible. Because he can and he will. He's been in the resurrection business for a long time. Boy, he would love to resurrect your story too. All right, commercial break over. All right, now what does blasphemy of the Holy Spirit do mean? If that's not the unforgivable sin, what is? What's the unpardonable sin? Um, let, let, me, let me summarize it for you in way too many words. And then let me just throw it up on the screen as bullet points after I give you way too many words. Okay? And then you can take a picture of it at the end. All right? That, I'll throw different ones up on the screen, and then the last slide will have all of them, so you can take one picture if you care. All right? This is for your resources. Um, here's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, defined as best as I could with the words of the scribes and scholars and some of my own to try to make sense of it. Um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is persistently, say persistently, you need to remember that word, persistently living a life of unrepentant rejection of the ministry and message of the Holy Spirit who constantly declares Jesus is Lord. The person who persists throughout their life in hardening their heart against God, the message of the Holy Spirit, and the provision of Jesus as Savior, and ultimately ascribing his glory to Satan, like what we saw here. They were ascribing Jesus' glory to Satan. Oh, you didn't cast out the demon. Satan did that. Ultimately ascribing his glory to Satan, or I would venture to say anything lesser than God. Satan would love to take credit for that. Anyone in those categories is outside of the reach of God's forgiveness and salvation. That was a lot of words, wasn't it? Why is that particular individual outside of the reach of God's forgiveness and salvation? Simple, because you are rejecting the only basis for which you can receive forgiveness and salvation, and that's Jesus. You get, you get it? If you reject the way, if you reject the truth, if you reject the life, there is no other way. There's only one. And it's the love of God to just give us one. If he gave us more, we'd ask for more, and so on and so forth. He only gave us one. Now, let me break that down to some digestible nuggets for you, along with a couple of other comments towards that end so we understand where we fall and if you have committed that issue. First of all, I want to mention to you that notice that your Bible does not refer to it as the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. We, we, we threw that language on it. It refers to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as one that never receives forgiveness because you're guilty of an eternal sin. It's not an unpardonable sin like it was a one-time transaction and, oops, I messed up. I'm outside of the grace of God now. It's this idea of this ongoing, I use the word persistent, rejection of the work of God and through the Holy Spirit and in the life of Jesus that causes someone to have ultimately committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So here's number one. All right, number one, 
is it's a sin of full knowledge. In other words, you can't commit it by accident. Uh, for those of you thinking, you did something or you're hearkening back in your mind to a, a really dark place in your life where you said a thing or did a thing, you're thinking, oh my gosh, did I do it? Did I do it? Did I do it? Can I be forgiven of that particular thing? All right, it, it's a sin of full knowledge. In other words, you don't get surprised by this sin. It is a cognizant decision to reject you understand? It was a cognizant decision throughout the span of your lifetime to reject the words and work of Jesus and, and the word of the Holy Spirit and all of these things we're talking about, essentially. Um, it's an ongoing hardening of the heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see in Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who would open the door to me, I'll come in and dine with him and sup with him. And like, here's the good news. Like, the Holy Spirit is so moved by the love of God for your life, that he continues to just keep banging on the door of your life, longing to be in relationship with you. And like some of us in this room and some of us listening online throughout life, because of the hard things life throws at us, you may have been hardening your heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to the point where you're no longer listening to him anymore. I want you to know the Holy Spirit's still involved in your life, and evidence of that is the fact that you even showed up here, you're even listening to this online or the podcast or whatever. By the way, that wasn't your idea. That was a strategy that God designed long before the foundations of the world, knowing you were going to be sitting here this morning wearing what you were wearing. You thought you came up with it. All you did was exactly what he had foreordained for you to do. And so the Holy Spirit is still evident in your life, still beckoning you and knocking on the door of your heart. Regardless of whether you recognize it or not, this is how we got connected today. Surprise, surprise. He's still talking to you. The third thing is attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. We see that very directly happen in this passage. That's why it's even concluded, Mark even includes concludes that Jesus said what he said because they were saying he had an unclean spirit. They committed a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, accrediting to Satan uh, things that are clearly and definably the hand of God and the work of God. In other words, let's summarize in a very general sense, to come to a place in your life where you begin to redefine what is light as dark and what is dark as light. Number four, it's, four and five really go together, but four is a very acute version of number five. Four is the willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. When John 3.16 said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, you fall into the whosoever's. The question is, are you willfully rejecting God's grace in Jesus Christ? I just told you the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient enough God's grace through Jesus is sufficient enough for you, yes, you, even you, and even me. Are you rejecting that? Number five is ultimately an unbelief in the gospel message itself. The whole entire, the entirety of the love story of the words and work of God empowered by the Holy Spirit through the life of Jesus himself so that we could be saved and transformed. Now, a couple of things I want to leave you with. Number six it's a sin that Christians cannot commit. You know why you can't commit it? Because you have already accepted the grace of God on the basis for which he could, it could be accepted through belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and King. That's what makes you a Christian. So you can't 
commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as a Christian, it's impossible. You've already accepted the thing that blasphemy rejects. You get what I'm saying? All right, which leaves us with the next category of people, of folks that were like, well, you wouldn't necessarily identify yourself as a Christian yet. You're kind of on the fence. You're not sure. You're trying to sort your way through it, and you're wondering, gosh, have I committed blasphemy to the Holy Spirit? And like, am I out, out, out? Number seven, this is a sin that has not been committed by one who has concern that they may have committed it. You get the idea? The very fact that you are nervous about it is indication that there is a sensitivity in you to the possibility of the Holy Spirit being real and alive and active in your life, the possibility that Jesus is King and Lord. You haven't outright rejected it. That's why you're nervous that you might have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But now let, let me do some pull-ups on that for just a second. Some folks may be listening in and saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, have I done it, have I done it? You're asking yourself the wrong question. The question is not, have I done the thing or have I been doing the one thing that God is saying that there is no forgiveness for eternally? That's the wrong question to ask. That's the enemy trying to convince you that that's the right question to ask, the wrong question. Listen to what I'm telling you. The right question is not, have I been doing the one thing I shouldn't have? The question you need to be asking this morning, have I done the thing that I was told that I should to receive the grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus' words and work his death on the cross and his resurrection. Let me summarize it very simply for you right here. You can make this decision in your chair by yourself, no preacher necessary. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says these words. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, we looked at it last week, Ephesians 2, it is by grace through faith that you have been saved. It is in your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he is Lord and King and God, that you are justified. In other words, you're forgiven of sins, just as if I'd never sinned, justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Get the picture? This is the prescription for salvation. This is the prescription of Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit ain't something you should even be worried about. The question you need to be asking yourself is, have I met Jesus in the one place he did tell me to meet him? In true trust and confession and belief that he is Lord and King. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that here in just a second. But before I do, I kind of, there's a couple other boxes we need to check so that we kind of reel it all in before we come back to this verse. And that's this very strange moment in Jesus' life and ministry that has some resonating truth for those who are considering or believe that they are followers of Jesus and have been saved. And his mother and his brothers came, verse 31, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Here they now, they showed up, the family coming to get him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, hey, your mama and your brothers, they're outside. They are seeking you. They've come to get you. And Jesus says these very difficult words to swallow. He answers them and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Pretty bold declaration from Jesus. You mamas would not be pleased. You would have went in there and snatched him up by his ear. Jesus was making a bold declaration here. As we're talking about salvation through the work of Jesus, through the beckoning of the Holy Spirit, man, 
If, if what Jesus just said here is true, there's a whole lot of other things that fall into this category. Jesus was just making the case right here, letting you know that even his own family, their blood alone was not sufficient enough to be a part of the family of God. They were going to need his blood. You hear what I'm saying? Even Mother Mary, she didn't just get in because she gave birth to Jesus. Her blood wasn't going to be enough. She was going to need his blood. His blood that came pouring down that cross. She would need the same forgiveness, even his own mama and his own bloodline, his own family. Which reminds me, for those who are sitting in the room, as I've ministered the gospel to folks over the, throughout my life, I hear a lot of the same things. Yeah, well, my grandfather was a pastor. That don't count. Well, I went to Catholic school. That don't count. Well, I graduated from catechism class. Y'all want to say it with me? That don't count. Well, I've gone to church my whole life. It's like all I know. That don't count. I was ministering a gospel to a guy one time, and his response to me I never heard before. He said, when I, was a, I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that I'm saved because when I was a baby, the Pope held me. I, I'm for, the Pope held me and blessed me. That don't count. Jesus' own mama. Her blood ain't enough. She would need his blood. It was going to have to be a personal relationship with even Mary. It has to be a personal relationship with us. Nobody can, nobody can get you saved for you. Nobody can get you forgiven for you. Jesus was the only one who could provide a way for us to stand rightly before God and be a part of the family of God once and for all, for all time. And Jesus said, let me make it easy for you. I'm going to do all the work. You would expect like the Rolodex of how to get saved would have been long. Jesus said, no, I'm going to come live amongst you. I'm going to do all the work. So all you got to do is believe and confess. It's that simple. Let's look at it again. For those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, I want you to pay close attention to the prescription for your forgiveness and salvation is right out of the word of God. Jesus has done all the work. He invites you to believe in the finished work of his death on the cross where he poured out his blood for our forgiveness, paid the penalty for our sins so that we may be right with God. And his resurrection, when just on the third day after that we celebrated every Easter, he walked up out of the grave, conquering sin, death, Satan, all of our greatest enemies. This is what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Would you flip back to the 10-9, uh, Cam, the verse before? You can look at that. You can bow your head in prayer. Whatever it is for you, let, let's, let's get your heart before the Lord for just a moment this morning. As you, as you just go before the Lord in prayer and consideration, I want you to consider, is this a confession that you have made in your life for real, legitimately believing that Jesus is God and King, that his work on the cross and through his resurrection was enough for you, yes, you, even you, and even me? Have you confessed that to him before? I'm not talking did you walk an aisle and fill out a card because your friends did when you were a kid. 
I'm not talking about was your granddaddy a preacher, and I'm not talking about have you shook hands with the Pope. None of that matters. I'm asking, have you come to a place of recognizing Jesus as Lord and King and committing your life to him? To receive the forgiveness of sins, to be made whole and to be made new in him. To be made right with God once and for all. Have you done that before? Now's your opportunity. Go ahead. There's the, there's the recipe. You confess in your own heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. As a matter of fact, join me this morning. Let's just confess together that Jesus is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. If you believe that, you're halfway there. Do you believe truly that he is Lord? God raised him from the dead. He is alive. Would you bow your heads together with me, GBC? As you continue to make that confession before him, I'm just curious, are, are any of you here this morning making that confession for the first time? Or maybe this is a moment of you reconnecting with the Lord and you've wandered away from God and this is like, there's an authenticity to this moment for you that had not existed before. And you're wanting to make that confession before the Lord. I'm gonna ask that you not, nobody's looking at you, but I'd like for you to confess it before me because I wanna celebrate that with you. Uh, but also, uh, we, we want to be a part of your journey of your ongoing discipleship. Giving your life to Jesus is not the finish line, it's the starting line. And then we begin, we begin practicing for eternity together. Are you here this morning, and, and this is the first real and authentic time in your life that you have confessed Jesus as Lord? There were three people in the last service that made that confession. You can just, just between you and me, just slip your hand up for just a second, because I just want to know where you're at in this journey. I see you. God bless you, dude. I see you. God bless you, young lady. I see you, ma'am. Anybody else? I see you all the way in the back. God bless you. Anybody else? It's between you and him. I don't get any extra credit in heaven, just so y'all know. I just I want you to be right with him. It's a deep burden of mine and Ansley's heart that your life be transformed by the gospel. This is really good news. Anybody else who's making that confession for the first time this morning? And I just haven't had a chance to see you. Well, listen, GBC, we're gonna, I'm going to ask Pastor Cameron to pray uh, and invite you into some next steps. But before we do, I just want to celebrate with this room in here that we had about three in the last service. We had about three in this service that have confessed Jesus as the Lord of their life. We celebrate that.